This is the fourth and final tape in the series on the life of Joseph by Terry Virgo. Psalm 105, we're going to read that same passage again as we read last evening. From verse 16. And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all the blessings that we have received from you this week. We thank you, Father, that they come to us because having not spared your own son, but given him freely for us all, you don't withhold any good thing. You freely give us all things richly to enjoy. And Father, as we are before you this evening, we ask in the name of Jesus that we may receive instruction from you that is not in word only, but in power and in much assurance and in the Holy Spirit, so that, Lord, we each one know that we've been taught by the Lord. Father, we do reach to you for that, and we pray for your gracious help in it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. As we conclude this whole Bible week and this session on Joseph, just to remind you that we have been looking at the life of Joseph because we've been seeing him as a type of the church of the last days. God says, in the last days, I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And we in the last nearly 20 years now, have been living through a phase of God pouring out His Holy Spirit in a new and mighty way. All over the world, there have been a people entering into a new dimension, even as God promised. No longer restricted here and there, but a great outpouring of His Spirit. And many are prophesying and seeing visions and dreaming dreams. And as we've heard this evening, even our children entering into this wonderful dimension. It's a sign. It's God's great plan for the end time. But we've seen in the story that as Joseph shared his vision, his brothers didn't rejoice at all. And he was rejected because of his vision. He was separated from his brothers. His vision separated him. And without reviewing the whole thing again at length, we noticed that he was thrown out of the home because of his vision. And that's been true largely with the work of the Spirit where it is making progress around the world. That where it hasn't just been swamped in some ecclesiastical institution, it has often been kicked out so that it might actually 
fulfill the purpose of God. Because as we saw, if you look at the story from one level, it just looks like a story of envy, jealousy, hatred. But if we look at it from another level, we see God sent the man ahead. God was writing the whole story. God had great purpose in it. We then spent an evening on seeing how Joseph, though he was clearly called of God and was seeing visions genuine from God, has to go through a program of testing and preparation. He saw his visions when he was 17, but he was 30 years of age before he came before Pharaoh. Just like Jesus suddenly emerged on the scene as that mature Son of God. So God has got to mature us through our testing, through our training. And we saw the testing that was in Potiphar's home. The terrible testing of regretting the past or just dreaming for the future. But no, he was a successful man now, in the present. Not living in regret or vain dreams. Now, the blessing of God was upon him. Everything he touched. And we see too the terrible temptation of the flesh. Potiphar's wife trying to spoil this child of God. We know how typical that is today. Perhaps such as in no other day, the power of uncleanness, trying to spoil the testimony of God. Drawing, saying, come lie with us. It's never been so flagrant. And there it was in this day, so flagrant, so head on. Come on, open, obvious. It's all around us today. Not only sexual sin, but the very cry of the nation, the cheating economically, cheating at work, cheating the way whole businesses are run. And they say, why are you so different? Come and lie with us. Come and be like us. But we had that wonderful answer, but he refused. He went through that test. Oh, he was thrown out. But actually, although it looks so tragic that he wasn't honoured, actually the angels rejoiced and said, right, move on to the next phase. And he moved in to prison. Promotion to prison. And then God, it says, the word of the Lord tried him. And last night we were looking at that furnace. We're seeing what God does when he puts us through the furnace, like he did with Elijah, like he's done with so many of his saints. He tries us to burn away the dross to get rid of the rubbish, to get rid of the empty testimony, the empty words we thought we believed and then find we don't believe at all when the heat's on. God showing us the reality of where we are and bringing forth precious faith through the trial that endures and goes through. And we saw that Joseph still believed. He still held on. He had a secret source of supply. God says he was like a tree planted by a spring of water and his Bow went over the wall. Not only did he survive in the furnace, but he had something over always. He was still a blessing. He was still giving to others. And he still believed in dreams. That when others said, we've had a dream, he didn't say, oh, I used to have dreams. He said, right, let's hear your dream. I still believe. I'm still committed to my vision. And so we see that word, until the word of the Lord came to pass. It tried him. But tonight, on this last night, we're going to see what it is for the word to come to pass. The vision fulfilled is the matter that we're looking at tonight. The vision fulfilled. What is God's great purpose for this Joseph? What is God's great purpose for this end time church 
worldwide upon which he's pouring his spirit and giving great vision to. What's his purpose for it? Well, let's come then to this concluding word. First of all, he emerges from prison. What made him emerge onto centre stage? Because that's what God wants us to hear in these days, that the testimony is going to suddenly come, not as that strange fringe thing, that's occasionally even referred to on television now, as people speaking in tongues, whatever that means. No, God is going to bring out a testimony to centre stage. How did it happen? Well, first of all, God promised it would happen. That's how the whole story started. The definite promise of God is how the story started. Joseph saw a vision. And that's the reason that it's going to happen, that God will glorify his son through his church because God has declared it to be so. That's the first reason. We'll come back to that later. Secondly, it was because of his persevering faithfulness. He could have disqualified himself. But he went through. He was utterly righteous. He went from test to test and was changed from one degree of glory to another. And God wants us to come through like that so that we are moving from one vessel to another, not just complaining and saying, oh God, why is it like this? But believing that God makes all things work together for good. And because we believe his word, we sing his praise. We move on confidently. And this man moved on confidently with God. His persevering faithfulness. And then thirdly, he emerged because of his life in the Spirit. That's how he broke through. Because he still was moving in his anointing. He was still moving with the gift God gave him. He still saw visions. He still interpreted dreams. He still was moving in that marvellous gifting of God. That's what opened the door for him. The butler remembered. He said, oh, there's a man who sees. There's a man in there who's moving in a new dimension. He doesn't seem to be shut into this world's ignorance and barrenness and emptiness. He seems to be in another dimension altogether. And that's what's going to break through for the church in these end times. That we can move in another dimension altogether. That's what we're after. It's not that we can do things pleasantly and with great aesthetic beauty and skill, even as we saw on the great wedding day. Oh, it's impressive. But no one's beating on the doors of the church afterwards saying, Oh, that was so impressive, you must show us how we can know God like that. It isn't that beautiful thing we can produce that's impressing the world. They'll say, that's nice, we'll have another one at the coronation. That's very pretty. But they're not saying, is this the answer to my life's need? We find it was the anointing of God that opened through the way. The anointing of God. And we find that Pharaoh said, a man, this is a man in whom is the divine spirit. That was the mark of Joseph, and that's the mark of the church God is going to bring forth in the end time. Men in whom there is the divine spirit. It's not just, oh, they're charismatics, oh, they speak in tongues, oh, they get excited in meetings. But this mature young man, 30 years of age, not just this 17-year-old who's perhaps a bit foolish the way he shares things, 
God is going to bring us to the fullness of the stature of Christ to a mature man. And corporately, we shall step upon the stage as a people in whom dwells the divine spirit. That's what will break through. And that's what God is doing. And that's why we have to go through the testing, the trials, the heartbreak. That's why many of you are in groups and churches that have known terrible sadness and sorrow, even sometimes breaking of relationships. Furnace heat. Because God is going to make us mature. He's going to burn away the dross to bring forth this mature man. Hallelujah. It's God's answer. God's great program. He sent a man. And he had to prepare him and work upon him. How did he emerge? How did he come forth? Well, he came out of that furnace as a man in deep union with God. It's so lovely the way the man just bursts upon the scene. And they say to him, now we understand you can interpret dreams. And his immediate reply is, it is not in me, but God will. Immediately they encounter God. They don't just encounter this man. He brings God right into the centre of the whole thing. It is not in me, he says. God will. And his whole testimony is on the same line. And it's no good us going into a furnace if we don't come out of it knowing God better. God puts us in a furnace that we might have a manifestation and revelation of Jesus in a new way. And we come out of it saying, it's not in me, but God will. That's what Paul says, that we go through the furnace, not that we would trust in ourselves anymore, but in Christ who raises the dead. We've we've lost all confidence. The furnace has shown us what rubbish we are. We think, oh God. And God says, I'm glad you've discovered what I knew from the beginning. But I'll raise you up. I'll bring you through in newness of life. A whole new dimension. God deeply with him. And with great confidence in God. He was still a young man. And yet, he had such confidence in God. He could have been thinking, well, our God is just the God of my family. Abraham is only three generations back. This whole religion, if you like, is such a new thing. He could have thought, as many pagans did of his day, well, there was a God of the mountains and a God of the valleys and a God of Egypt and a God of Canaan. And he could have said, well, um, I don't even know if it works down here. He could have just thought, well, it's just our family religion. Many of us are like that. We feel, well, Dad's a Christian and I suppose I believe those things. But he didn't come on the scene like that. He said, God will work. This matter, he says, is determined by God. And God will bring it about. And so, all this mighty Pharaoh meets with almighty God. Joseph had an understanding that his God and his father's God was the king of the nations. Do you believe that this evening? Some of you young people going to school where they don't believe in your father's God. Do you feel defensive and say, well, that's the God we believe in at home when we we give thanks for the meal and at holiday we go away to the Bible week but headmaster doesn't believe in him and... So we tend to get apologetic about the whole thing. But Joseph wasn't like that. He said, this is determined by God. These dreams you've had, you've had dreams about these uh, 
cattle and, the, and so on. These things that are going to happen. He says, it is God. And my God is over Egypt as much as he is over where I was born. He's comforted in God. We need to be like that. We need to be like that when we're at work, when we're at school, wherever we are, to believe that God is over everything. That's what he learned from Potiphar's house through prison, that he proved God wherever he was. I believe even in our firms, and someone came and spoke to me after the last meeting or two ago when I was speaking about us believing that as Christians we can bless our firms. He was saying that the firm where he works, a couple of Christians, they said, oh God, because we are here, bless this firm. And it's happening. And the testimony is there. And we should be like that. We believe God can come in and bless us and prosper us because God's hand is upon us. And so he saw that this is the great God, the almighty God. This generation is waiting to see people who know God. We're not just coming, well, I think this, or would you try that? The Bible begins like that. It says, in the beginning, God. It doesn't argue for the existence of God. It says, God. Joseph was like that. Straight away, they said, can you solve our problem? We've got this problem. He said, God. Elijah came on the scene. He said, God. John the Baptist came on the scene. He said, you need to get right with God. We've got to find courage to say to our generation when they say, we don't know what's happening to this nation. We so often say, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? We so quickly just agree and go along. We've got to find that by God's grace and his spirit being upon us, we say, the nation's turned its back on God. That's where we've missed the way. This nation used to be great when it honoured God. It doesn't honour God anymore. And we've got to bring to an atheistic nation... God, whom we believe in. There's a whole lack of God consciousness and Joseph was unafraid and unashamed to say, God is the answer. And so he comes right into the midst of this story, which I've not bothered to recount to you because you know it so well that Pharaoh saw the dreams, he saw the seven prosperous years, followed by the seven years of famine. He saw it in different ways with cattle and so on. But that's what the interpretation was, that there would be seven prosperous years when they'd never had it so good. Some of us are old enough to remember that. And that was going to be followed by seven years of famine that would somehow devour up all the wealth that had gone before. And they, Joseph came in and said, God's behind the whole thing. Psalm 105 says this extraordinary thing as I read it to you. God called for a famine on the land. And so we see the next thing this evening is God's wonderful providence again. Just as the story started with God's providence, when Joseph had to go down to Egypt, God called for some Ishmaelites to be actually coming down that day just as the the brothers turned against Joseph. And it just happened on that day, they came down, they were travelling to Egypt, and God was behind the whole thing. God called for those Ishmaelites to come there. And God called for the famine. That's how mighty God is. Like we might call a dog, say, hey, come on, boy, come on. God can say, right, come on, famine. He can call for it. He can just whistle it up, say, come on, famine. That's our... 
our God. He can call for it. And today, we are living in days of terrible famine. We're entering into it more and more. We're finding this terrible economic famine. A famine of answers. People don't know which way to turn. We're finding worldwide economic pressures that people don't have the answers for. And in our own nation, we don't have the answers. There's a terrible famine economically. How are we going to get through? Pressure's coming upon us. Whereas we used to think, oh, you've never had it so good. Suddenly, we're nearly three million out of work. And suddenly, it's looked as though it's going to get worse. And we thought it was going to bottom out this summer and come through. But now they're saying it's another year. And where will it go next? What's the answer? Terrible famine. God just calls it up. And as Alan reminded us earlier in the week, economists are saying they don't understand how it's happening. They can't find the usual uh, ways in which the means and ways things develop don't seem to work anymore. They can't find the answer in it. God is over the whole thing in his providence as he's preparing his Joseph to bring him out to centre stage, God's preparing a famine. God's bringing people to their knees. And there's a terrible famine, not only economically, but morally. A terrible moral famine. We're now speaking about the possibility of a new ministry to deal with the family life of this country. Because it is costing the taxpayer so much money to pay for the fruits of broken families. And so they say, we've got to get a new ministry on it. The nation is morally bankrupt. The nation, there's a famine just of wisdom for answers. Where are the, where are the great national leaders? Where are the great figures that could come up and say, this is the way forward? There's a famine in the arts. There's famine. Where do you hear a nice new melody these days? What's happening to our young people in terms of the music? Terrible famine. A very close friend of mine is an art student in Brighton. He's just finished his degree course and gave me the joyful pleasure of looking at the work of all those students at the end of their three years degree programme. I walked around Brighton Art College. There is famine in the land. Terrible famine. You think that is the product of all those years of training and work. I'm not speaking of my illustrious friend, of course. (laughs) Terrible. Black. Awful. And the very atmosphere of the college and meeting the students that were there. So true what Dave Mouquet said earlier on. Young people so spoiled and expressing that on the pages and on the canvases. There's a famine. A terrible famine in so many aspects of our life. A famine of fresh ideas. A famine of skill. A famine of steadfastness. A famine of integrity. And perhaps the greatest famine of all, a famine of the teaching of God's word. That is the greatest famine a nation can ever know. That's why when Elijah said there will be no rain 
God also said to him, nor shall you preach. Because Elijah could have gone around with this tremendous ministry. He could have said, look, there you are, still no rain. You listen to me. He could have had a whistle-stop tour of every city in Israel. And there he had the closed heavens to back it up. But God's greatest judgment on a nation is to give them a famine of the word as well. So having issued his original word, God just said, right, now you go and be silent. God can make the famine. And that's the most terrible famine when God isn't speaking anymore. And you want to be careful as individuals, as so do I. We might think the worst thing that can happen to us is conviction of sin in a meeting. Oh, to feel open before God. No, that's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing can happen is this. God doesn't speak to you anymore. God has no more to say to you. We see that terrible chapter in Romans, chapter 1, where that phrase occurs three times. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. That is the worst thing can ever happen. That's what hell is all about. It is a place where God will never speak again. People have refused and rejected and turned their back. And God does that to nations and generations. And in hell, God will give them up. He will not speak again. And that's the most terrible famine. In this country at the moment, you have to search and search to find, is there a place where the word of God is faithfully proclaimed? No, there's famine. Terrible famine. And it's leading to moral decadence right across the nation. Now that's what God did in Joseph's experience. He called for a famine. He said, right, let there be famine. And what used to be health and strength, God could just cause the famine to eat up the wealth. And God seems to have done that in our nation in so many different areas. So that whereas you could trust an Englishman's word, hmm, once upon a time, if you wanted a really good car, you go for an English one. These days you go for a Japanese one. You find that there's wealth is being swallowed up. You find that there are these problems that are coming amongst us. And onto that scene of famine, Joseph emerges with the answer. And I believe that's what God is doing. He prepares the situation and he prepares the answer. And he brings Joseph through just at that time because Joseph could have just been delivered out of prison. That could be the end of the story. But no, it's not just a matter of deliverance from prison. It is to come into the purpose that God has for him. And he emerges into a famined land with all the need that they have, all the answers that are necessary. He comes with the answers to the need of his generation. And that's what God is doing in his church today. That God is teaching us what are the answers. God has given us the answers. He has given us the principles of the kingdom of God. And they're the answers to the nation's needs. He's taught us what it is to live righteously. To honour God, to put him first. He's teaching us such precious principles the man in the street has never heard of. He's never grasped. He's never seen. When we were on the seafront last Sunday, 
We had a baptism in the sea in Brighton. And afterwards, there were numbers of us, scores of us, just around the beach. And we were singing and laughing. And, and several people said, why are they so happy? That was their question. Why are they so happy? Because everyone else is just so conscious of the barrenness that's around. And God has given us the answer. They don't know why we're so happy. They just think, oh, we're having a sing-song. But underneath all that, God's taught us such big things. He's taught us about integrity. He's taught us about family life. He's taught us about the essential covenant of love between husband and wife. The essential relationship that a wife submits to her husband and honours his headship in a generation which has thrown that overboard and said, no, we want women's liberation. We want freedom for the woman. We want the woman not to have to obey. We want this. We insist on that. We would argue strongly for this. And they don't know that it's just an expression of famine and that God has given us the answers to life. God has shown us over these years, this preparation time, he's been saying, parents, you love those children. You honour those children. Don't you just send them off to the Sunday school to do something for them. You train them. You teach them. You discipline them. Don't just let them run wild. When everybody else is saying, oh, let them run wild. We're in a new generation. Let them do their own thing. God's been saying, no, this is my way. Train them. Teach them. Our six-year-old had a birthday party just a few weeks ago. And we had games, and we had an organised time. And one of the mothers of uh, our little guests came along afterwards, and uh, after we sort of tied them all down, I don't think we've had such a a fantastic afternoon as we have with these six-year-olds who burst upon us. But we said, oh, we've just been playing a few games. And she said, oh, but they don't like that sort of thing these days. She said, when we have them for a party, we just say, well, there's the food, do what you like. And they just hold on for a couple of hours till it's all over. But actually, they did like games. And they did like it all being organised. And they did like being told, no, do that, but don't do that. And we've got a, almost as though that's out of another planet. She said, but you don't do that these days. But you do. This is the answer. This is the wisdom that's from above. This is how Joseph burst on the scene. With God's wisdom. This is how to live. And God has been showing us these principles. This is how you live in the world, successfully. And all these principles that the world would abandon with its modern thinking, God would say, just burst on the scene with the reality of kingdom life. And it's like something from another planet as they hear it. God's told us about honesty at work, integrity, a proper work ethic. That's the answer. It's got to come through this nation. A proper work ethic. Workmen doing a good day's work, honouring their master. Masters being honest and not manoeuvring their labour in order to get the best out of them and destroying them. It's not just one side or the other. The Bible teaches there's responsibility on every side. These are the precious laws of the kingdom, the wisdom of God of how to live on his planet. God's taught us to be a covenant community in an age where covenant is just cast aside. And so we come forth with this wisdom from God. And God's given us joy through righteousness in a world that's 
as miserable as sin. I do believe that's a phrase we ought to use a lot. Can I commend that to you? At work, school, let's talk about being as miserable as sin. Perhaps people will hear that sometime. and Understand that sin is essentially miserable. And that God has caused us to find joy through righteousness. Hallelujah. We have more joy than when their wine abounds. That's reality. And God wants us to come upon the scene with all these answers from heaven. This wonderful wisdom of God. Now, Joseph came on to a famine situation and had stored up through the wisdom of God everything that people needed. And that is what God is doing with us by his spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the kingdom principles, the wisdom of God, and he's causing famine to come on the land. And that's what God will do in the last days, that we will burst on the scene and say, this is the way you do it. This is the way you live. And as the famine spread over all the face of the earth, it says in Genesis 41, verse 56, the famine spread over all the face of the earth. It just spread and spread. Then Joseph opened all the storehouses. Do you see the picture? Terrible need and all the answers. Joseph just opened up the storehouses. And then it says in verse 57, Then the people of all the earth came to buy grain from Joseph. They poured in. They said, we've, we've got to come to Joseph. He's got the answers. He's got the provision that we need. That's the way it works. So we find that Joseph is truly an end time figure. Because if you look with me, will you look at Isaiah chapter 2, please? Isaiah chapter 2, that just as our story started with in the last days, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. So it says here, in the last days, Isaiah 2 verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. There it is. In the last days, God will cause the mountain of the house of the Lord, that great Zion that we so often sing about, to be raised above the other mountains. The other mountains won't be able to provide the answers. Political, humanistic, all kinds of endeavour, various philosophies, they won't be able to bring the answer. But the mountain of the house of the Lord will appear above all the other mountains. And all the nations will say, there's grain down there. They've found out how to live. Let's go. God has promised it. They will say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. That he may teach us concerning his ways. We shall find, I believe, people up and down our streets whose marriage situations are in a desperate state. 
who don't know how to look after their children, who are in financial problems, all kinds of problems. And we shall find opportunity after opportunity to say, this is the way. This is how you live. God has promised that's how it will be. The ordinary people like you and I who've been through the furnace, through the testing, coming forth as a corporate testimony in our towns. And people will come and say, how do you get so happy? How do you get so fulfilled? How is it that your families are so secure? God has said that's how it will be. Again, in Isaiah chapter 60, if you'd like to turn over to that, just to underline the same kind of a word. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth. That's another way of saying there's going to be moral famine. Deep darkness, the people. But the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will appear upon you. That's how it was with Joseph. He came forth with the glory of the Lord upon him. And the nations will come to your light. The kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters carried in their arms. Then you will see and be radiant. And your heart will thrill and rejoice. Because this whole thing's happening. But in the last days, God will do that. He will bring forth this marvellous, mature Joseph company with answers for the famine. And people will stream in and say, oh, we need these answers. We need the grain that you have got. And we find even Joseph's brothers begin to hear. Those who formerly said, we don't want to hear about that they begin to say, looks as though there's some answers here. And I find it interesting to see that Joseph isn't always writing letters back to home and saying, have you really considered this fully? I feel I should keep on saying to you about this. No, I find that the brothers turned when they saw the results of Joseph's testimony to the world. And I believe we should see that. That God wants us to have a testimony to the world. And that when the thing really works in the world and lives are being changed, we'll find that brothers who at one time rejected because of the testimony we were bringing will turn around and say, but it seems to be working. They seem to have got the answers to life. They're not playing at religion, nor are they playing just at visions. They seem to have got hold of a whole lot more. They've got the grain for the famine. They've got the answers to life. We thought they were just charismatics. We thought they were just all froth and bubble. But look what's happening to them. They've got solid principles of life. And people are turning to them. And they're growing and their churches are growing. And we shall find our brothers will come. And the beautiful thing of this story, and we must get hold of it with all our hearts, is the way in which Joseph received his brothers. Joseph didn't turn on them. He didn't say, ah, you threw me out. He didn't turn around and say, oh, you were cruel. You wouldn't believe before. Now Joseph was just so thrilled. Genuinely thrilled that his brothers wanted to come into what God had shown him. And there was no resentment, and there was no bitterness, and there was no keeping them at arm's distance. He loved them. And we haven't time to read all the chapters of that beautiful story of how he hid himself from them for a moment, and then how he revealed who he truly was, 
But what we see is that he wept upon them and he hugged them. And they were fearful. They said, well, I wonder what he'll do now. And he said, oh no, no, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That he might save life. And Joseph's heart was full and open and willing to receive his brothers. And we must always have that spirit. Some of you have been kicked out. I know some of you have been thrown out of churches, thrown out of this situation and that, because you were of this end time people of seeing the visions. I want to say to you, with all your heart, be open to your brothers. Because God's purpose wasn't just for Joseph. God's purpose was for all his sons. God's purpose was going to go on with the whole company, the whole family of Israel. In fact, from Judah, God's purpose would ultimately break forth. Let's not think that just because we had the vision, we were thrown out, we are special. No, God just sent a man ahead that he might save them all. His heart was for them all. God's heart is for all his beloved children, whether they receive your visions and dreams or not. Whether I accept your charismatic testimony or not. His heart is for everyone whom he has purchased with his blood, who is brought out of Egypt, who he loves and he wants them to become part of his ongoing purpose. And it's for us to always remember that. And to just count it a great privilege that God permitted you to go ahead. Let's face the reality. That's how it is. God has sent some out so that in the freedom of what they found outside, they could get down to the things that really count and find the answers to the world's needs and stop playing at religion. That's what God's been doing. And as the world begins to say, hey, these churches really speak my language. It doesn't seem to be all this funny religious stuff. They're really working it. They meet in their homes. They love one another. They share their goods. They give to one another. They're a community. They seem to be beautiful people. And as the world comes into that, our brothers will begin to see and we must embrace them with our whole heart and receive them with all our will. Joseph didn't hold out against them at all. And God's purpose wasn't just for Joseph but for the whole company. So God sent a man ahead to save Egypt and to save the people of God. That's what God is doing today. As we draw this word to a conclusion tonight, that's the whole thrust of this Joseph picture. That God is doing a great thing by His Spirit in the church. That God is sending a people ahead who are going to have a voice to the world and people will pour in and our brothers will come in and God's great end time program will begin to head up and become complete because Joseph not only was able to feed the people not only to say look if you live like this you'll be alright but it says quite plainly he made him Lord in his house the ruler over his possessions, to imprison the princes at will. It's very striking that God is not just bringing the church to feed the nations with truth, but God is bringing a kingdom where the government of Jesus is manifest. Where Jesus is king. Where he is Lord. Where the church isn't just a hospital for getting people healthy again, and then they can go out on their way. 
but the church is bringing in the rule and government of Christ. That he might bind his princes at will. God wants to teach us as a church not only to be healthy, but how to war a spiritual warfare. How to execute the judgment written against the princes of darkness of this world. The church coming to its place of stature and might and authority. Hallelujah. And he was given that position. You can bind my princes. You take authority in this land of Egypt, which is representing the world there. God is going to bring us forth, not only in health, but in spiritual government authority over spiritual wickedness. That is God's purpose for us. That's our preparation for eternity, that we sit with Jesus upon his throne. That God wants us to bring in the kingdom of Jesus. God has spoken to him and said, You sit down until I make your enemies a stool for your feet. That's the word of God to Jesus in Psalm 110. You sit down until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's the verse that's most referred to. As if God was saying, look, that's the heart of the matter. That's the whole program. That's what's going to happen. This Jesus will come forth as a mighty king in and through his people. He, our head in heaven, we, his people on earth, will establish the rule of Christ. Of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And people will come from all nations to hear the ways of God and say, come and make decisions for us. Come and bring God's ways to us. So the government of Jesus shall increase through his church. And that's God's hand upon his church for today. That's his program for us. So that the whole world benefits. Jesus is the saviour of all men, especially those who believe. And there will be not only the believers, the redeemed of God, but even the world will benefit in different ways. As Egypt benefited from this saving work. Just turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, please. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, it says, Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. When he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. But when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him. That God may be all in all. Glorious consummation of the ages. When Jesus has the authority, when there is a worldwide expression 
of the authority of Jesus. And then he hands over the rule to his father, having subjected all authority to himself. A mighty, enormous plan in God. It starts off with a young 17-year-old seeing visions. But culminates with that young man taking the position of rule, authority, saving his own family, saving the nation, and bringing in the rule of God. That's God's calling to us. That's what he's doing in us. God wants us to see that vision, to be utterly clear and committed to it, to endure the hardships of getting there, to come through the furnace with peace and joy and faith and confidence, to turn back our back on every cry that says, oh, come and lie with me. Why do you get so intense? Why do you keep on this way? Come and be like the rest of us. Come and just live like we live. But for those who say, no, we are utterly clear. We're going right through with God. We're going to fulfill our vision. Then God will give to us that sudden door of open. We will come forth as those upon whom the Spirit rests. Those who have the divine Spirit. And what God has been teaching us in these years will be like storehouses of wonderful food for a hungry world. Hungry world saying, how do you live? How do you keep your marriages together? How do you live in this world? We'll say, right, we'll open our storehouse. And all the nations, it says, will come to the house of the Lord saying, teach us, teach us. That's our calling. That's how mighty and magnificent it is. God would have us be utterly committed to it. God would have us arise and shine because I believe the time for the testimony of Joseph to break forth on a broad scale is soon ahead of us. God only needs to just have his word come through and it will burst out, no longer just hidden away, but bursting onto the centre stage so we say this is the way that God would have us live. And that great testimony will emerge in the will and purpose of God. You might say, well, some of us might not even live to see that glorious thing happen on the world. Some of us might not see the whole thing. What about those who went before? What about the, the great reformers who, who laid down their lives? What about the missionary pioneers who've died in far-off countries, who've given their lives? Won't they see this this glorious purpose of God, well, they're not going to be around in these last days. Well, let me just remind you that there is another way we can see this setting. If you just turn to Romans chapter 8, and we all draw to a close in this verse. In Romans chapter 8, not only is there a particular famine in these particular days but this is a mighty principle of God down through the ages in Romans 8 and verse 18 or verse 16 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God if children heirs also heirs of God fellow heirs with Christ 
if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is so like Joseph. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. God called for a famine. The whole creation is subjected to futility. Not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans. Not just England in 1981. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the showing forth or adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. But not only in this present time is God working this out, but as a great cosmic plan, God has subjected the whole world to This futility, the creation, is in slavery to corruption. There's rust and moth and things that spoil. There's death and heartbreak and we lose loved ones and our hearts are broken. And missionaries, lovely young men and women, go to the mission field and lose their lives. And the whole thing is in slavery to corruption. And there are tears and heartache and sickness that doesn't get healed and broken hearts and men in prison in Russia and China and men who've laid down their lives and the whole thing is in slavery to corruption. God has allowed that thing to happen. Why? And what will bring it to a conclusion? The whole creation is groaning and travailing for what? The revealing of the sons of God. They're waiting for that end time when suddenly God's great purpose comes to conclusion and we snap out of even this time span and God's eternal purposes unfold. And we, oh, we just look like slaves in these human flesh bodies. God will suddenly, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, reveal that we really are the sons of God. And all this suffering, Paul says, all this pressure, all this furnace, he said it's just a slight momentary affliction. The sufferings of these present time. It's not just, beloved, that we're looking for a kingdom on this earth when Jesus makes his church come beautiful. Some centuries of believers have gone before. There is a great program when in the moment of time, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. We shall all step out of this pressure into eternal glory and the whole creation itself will be set free. Just like Egypt benefited from Joseph's deliverance, the whole creation itself also 
will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What a day that's going to be. When Christ comes to be glorified in his saints. When Jesus comes with a trumpet sound. And we'll be changed even now we're the sons of God. But when he appears we'll be like him. We'll be changed in a moment of time. And the whole creation that is in bondage to decay will come into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. The freedom of the glory. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And all this pressure and all these tears, God says to me and to you, I'm building forever. I'm building for eternity. So we read of men like Watchman Nee, who spent 25 years in prison for his faith. And then didn't erupt onto the stage like a Joseph. Didn't suddenly come forth and all China say, I want to hear what you have to say, Watchman Nee. Praise God, men all around the world are hearing what he has to say through his books. But there will be a glorious day when God puts everything right. Where all down the ages, those who, like Joseph, went through the furnace, God will bring them out. God will vindicate them. God will put it right forever and ever. And all those huge questions, we think, oh, why such pressure? Why such fires? There was no exit for him. He didn't get released. He went right through death. God says, oh, yes, I'll put it all right in the end. And you'll be changed. If you suffer, yes, you'll reign with me. There'll be that whole eternal aspect of this. Not just the church coming to be vindicated on the stage of the last days. God will have a glorious church on this planet. He will demonstrate what his church is to be on this planet. He has declared it. There will be a visible, human, triumphant church. But when God has done that, he will then brush aside the whole human thing and open a whole bigger curtain and say, these are the triumphant ones down through the ages of whom the world was not worthy. They were sawn asunder. They lived in caves. They gave everything. Here's the bigger scene. Now let's go on into eternity. Reign with me forever and ever. Be my people forever and ever. And all the pressures were say, oh God, it was a fleeting moment. It was nothing. What are these present things? Paul, that great apostle, died in a prison somewhere perhaps. Peter, crucified somewhere. Oh, where's this vindication? On the pages of eternity. While we glory in the kingdom that God's going to show us in this world, let's never forget that the New Testament glory is also in that eternal kingdom. That's the great thing that we live for. So Joseph goes through his trials in order to sit on a throne and rule. And God will call us all to that through eternal ages by his grace.